You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Um, we're back in the studio. It's uh, It's been a minute on our end. It feels like forever. And so yeah. I'm trying to remember where exactly, I'm trying to remember how we ended the, the show. I know where we ended, but I don't remember exactly what we discussed. Um, but hopefully you do, because it was just last week for you guys. <laughs> and, uh, but huh. we're, we're picking up in chapter three um, with the call of Samuel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Eli, yeah. In, in the last chapter, Eli's ha- um, house has been rejected. Yeah. And his, his offspring are not going to have long lives. And that's going to become important here in a few chapters. This book, it jumps everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there are so many ties in trying to keep it all together. I was just, my brain was on overload as I was doing notes for this because there, there's so many points. I feel like that meme with the guy with the strings, you just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in the, the conspiracy theorist yes. guy. Yeah. So the, uh, well, we, we're not cracking into any of those, but this is actually, um, you know, one of the, one of the uh, complaints about the Bible is that the timeline doesn't work. But of course, ancient historians didn't, well, they, they weren't even thinking of themselves as historians for right. one. They were just uh, putting stories together and, and trying to, to, to put, to tell the whole story, but it's one of those things. This is where we actually kind of jump back in the timeline and it's a really easy one to see. And it's an obvious one that's there for an obvious reason, because we're kind of going, we're kind of trying to tell two stories concurrently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like two main characters. Yeah. We've, yeah. We're, we're, but we're, we're jumping off of Eli as the main character and on to Samuel. So we've kind of completed Eli's story. That section of it, that section of it. And he'll still be a recurring character, for a little while, for, yeah, for yeah, for a little <laughs> bit. But um, we're go to get to the the beginning of Samuel's story. You have to go back in Eli's story a little bit, and mm-hmm. that's pretty easy to see in the text. But I just wanted to, while it's an easy one to look at, kind of point that out for you know, oh, to, yeah. to see that to show that this happens a lot and probably often more times than we realize. And, well, and in Samuel, it's just so obvious because he even does some deliberate flashback scenes. The writers do, and you're just kind of going. Okay, wait a minute. This happened, but then that happened, and so trying to make a cohesive timeline, and then if you try to bring in Chronicles, which is telling some of the same stories when we get mm-hmm. to David, and then you want to get into the prophets that are addressing the issues going on during the kings' times, then yeah. now you've got all of these threads to hold together, oh, and that's what we're here to do, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and let's not forget that every story that's gone before. You were going to have different points of reference to them, particularly Genesis and Exodus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's, you know, not too big of a deal to hold it all together. But so Samuel is older than, you know, a child now. Some years have passed. He's mm-hmm. not a four-year-old or a two-year-old at this point. Um, he's old enough to be entrusted with certain duties around the temple. And so, you know, seven, eight, nine, we don't, we don't know. The, the, the timeline is obscure. So he's still, we're operating under the guidance of Eli. So he's still needing some direction. He's not ready to go out on his own yet. Right. So um, we're told in verse one that uh, the word of the Lord was rare. And in those days, there was no frequent vision. And we know that this is accurate because we're still in the time of the judges. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Remember, the, those two books overlap. And God is only speaking to a very select few individuals for specific purposes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when he's talking to Gideon or he's talking to Samson, it's because he's got a job for them to do. It is not a nationwide prophecy that's being delivered. Right. So the word of the Lord was rare. Um, that phrase, when we find something like that or God's not speaking this is a matter of judgment. Mm-hmm. There, there's something going on that God's not happy about. So we find that in Psalm 74, 9, uh, there was no longer any prophet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of funny because I think, I think of people who think uh, that, you know, they don't necessarily want God to speak because they're afraid of what he'll say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and where this is kind of like, it's like when you're in a, you know, 
when there's when there's an issue with your in your marriage or or relationship and we need to talk we need to talk yeah <laughs> and uh but whenever there's the silence you're like is it worse <laughs> well and that's kind of what's going on here what's happening and do the people want the vision mm-hmm. because we're going to have a contrast that comes up where the, we see the people they want the vision they want god to speak mm-hmm. but here there's no cry for it but there there hasn't been a cry for it go back to samson mm-hmm. there was no cry for a prophet or god to show up at samson's time and god chooses to move the same thing remember we made those connections from samson and samuel earlier on this is another thing that connects them so we should be prepared for this. Right. So, um, yeah, Psalm 74, 9 talks about no longer being a prophet. Lamentations 2, 9, prophets found no vision. Uh, Amos 11, 8, 11, sorry, the people who th- will thirst to hear the Lord. So when God mm-hmm. is being silent, it's with the, the intention of making people want to hear him. Right. It, it's not silent just because... He's mad at them. I mean, he might be mad at them, but it's he wants the communication to be restored, but they have to approach him with the right heart. Mm-hmm. So, well, it's like I've told you the solution. Mm-hmm. Now let's see how long this plays out. And whenever you get tired of not having any help, come see me. Well, and that's the theme of Samuel. You've got the solution. You know what to do. It's the theme of judges. Mm-hmm. And, and really, if you want to be, you know, current, it's the theme of our lives. Right. We've got the solution. If you want me to move, do what you were told. Uh, no frequent vision is an interesting uh, phrase because the word there is katzon. Uh, it's the same word that we find in Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no katzon, the people cast off restraint. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a prophetic vision, and it always has something to do with prophecy. So even though you kind of miss it in the Proverbs, we have all these other uses for it that, that demonstrate that. Mm-hmm. And Amos 1, 1, Micah 1, 1, and Isaiah 2, 1, that's the verbal form of that. And it's found in the phrase, the words of the prophet concerning what he saw. Mm-hmm. So there's that connection. But then in Isaiah 30, 10, I thought this was an interesting verse. The, the word katsun's there, but it's got a lamed or what we would call the letter L attached to it. Okay. And when you attach that, it becomes a title for prophets. And mm. so it, it always has that connection. So uh, Isaiah 30, 10 says, when who say to the seer, do not see, and to the prophets, Lakson, do not prophesy. To us, what is right? Speak to us smooth things and prophesy illusions. Hmm. So it's, it's true vision. It's someone who has the ability to see into the spirit realm, which again, this is an ongoing theme in Samuel. Right. So um, Lamentations 2.14, I know I'm spending some time on this word because this is an important word in, in Samuel. But it's translated visions or oracles. And the, the, uh, the, the English version, the ESV, has visions and oracles as two separate words. Both times in the Hebrew, that word is katzon, but English translators are afraid of repetition. And okay. they think that if you don't change the vocabulary up and use synonyms, then the writing's not going to be as interesting. Right. And so they kind of subvert the Hebrew idea of if you repeat something... Then it's important. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why I want to get a hold of Robert Alter's translation, because he retains all those repetitions from everything I've heard from him and read. So yeah. um, that's on my list of things, you know, that I need for the podcast, not, yeah, not sure. for myself. You know. So if anybody wants to send that, um, <laughs> send us a message. So, yeah, it, but it, this, this idea of seeing uh, into the spirit realm isn't just relegated to Israelites' prophets. It actually extends to other prophets, prophets to foreign lands. Hmm. And so we have it used um, four times of unnamed prophets, that, that lacazon, where it becomes a title for a prophet. We have it eight times used for a named prophet. Mm-hmm. Three times it's used as the temple singers, which I thought was very That's interesting. very interesting, yeah. Yeah, well, you've got to remember in the ancient world, and if you're in the paddle store, you've got a copy of my thesis, where it talks about artists, whether it's musical or visual, they share a role in the Hebrew culture of being prophetic. And so um, I'm not going to take time to go on that today, but... Yeah, well, that's, that's for a future podcast. We'll yeah. get to that. So basically the point is there's a supernatural meaning to this word, and it always talks about going into the spirit realm, seeing into the spirit realm, and revealing what's going on in the spirit realm to humanity. Okay. So basically what's going on Nobody knows what the game plan is. Right. If you're Israel, you've been operating under the premise that 
you have supernatural guidance and vision, and God is speaking to you about what's happening behind the scenes through the prophets. And if you don't have that, then what do you do? Right. Well, and, and so the, the assumption, of course, being you know, that, that you have that, but here the, the, the writer of Samuel is saying, no, you didn't have the guidance that you thought you did. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you know, this idea that prophecy is important is really huge in Samuel. And it's why in the Jewish Bible, Samuel is included in the Nevi'im, the, the prophetic books, mm-hmm. because everything that happens in Samuel is going to be initiated by a prophetic word mm-hmm. where we don't have that through Judges. Right. And so Judges really provides that great contrast. And if you haven't listened to our series on Judges, you probably want to go ahead and do that because there's going to be some things that we're going to be talking about that won't make a lot of sense going forward sure. unless you have that background. <laughs> yeah. So um, verse two, at that time, Eli, whose eyes had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. So Eli, he, he's always going to, almost always going to have some reference to vision, but mm-hmm. he doesn't have it. So if the leader of Shiloh doesn't have a vision, then why would we expect the, the country to? Right. Because he's a representation of the country as a whole. Mm-hmm. So verse three, we're going to go on. The lamp of the, uh, I'm sorry, the lamp of God had not gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple uh, of the Lord where the ark of God was. So um, this is probably one of the more famous stories. Mm-hmm. We've got Samuel. He's in the temple. Uh, Eli's in his bed. Go ahead. Now, I have a question. It's a, I'm not sure if you're going to get mm-hmm. to this, but the, it says the lamp of God had not gone out. Now, is that a reference to just kind of what time of day it is? Because I do know that there are certain times that you light candles and you're not supposed to extinguish them. They are supposed to go out on their own. Right. Uh, in the temple, there was a light that was lit, or I don't know if it was one or more, uh, but there were lights that were in the temple mm-hmm. that were supposed to burn all night long. And there was somebody there who, um, who was charged with watching them and making sure that, you know, nothing set on fire, that they did not, they were not extinguished and they didn't go out until sunrise. Okay, so, so that means it's in the middle of the night. Precisely. So he, he's in the temple taking care of this. So this kind of gives you an idea of an age that we would, you know, what age would you trust a child to watch over candles unattended by anyone else? Well, and, I, I think in the ancient world, probably a little <laughs> earlier because they were a little more common. Two. <laughs> so. Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, things being lost in big fires used to be more common, too. But yeah, <laughs> and, and there's tapestries all around. Right. So, you know, it, we aren't asking for any trouble, but I actually saw something uh, about churches who, who do have candle lightings during their services. You know, they usually give the candle lighter to the youngest person mm-hmm. in the congregation. You know, what could go wrong with that? Um, it'd be interesting to see if that has any ties back to Samuel because of this. Um, that's liturgical, and I'm not familiar with that, that world as much. But right. anyway, just, just if anybody knows, let me know. So, um, but notice what it doesn't say. It does not say he's asleep. He's not asleep. Everybody wants to assume that, that he is asleep. You do not sleep in the temple. Now, he was lying down. You shouldn't lie down in the, tem- the temple. As a matter of fact, you aren't even supposed to sit down in the temple. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, nobody's really doing completely the right thing. They're just kind of doing sort of the right thing at this point in time. And um, that verse about tending the lamps in the temple is in Exodus 27. Uh, that's 20, uh, verse 20 and 21. And let me, I actually marked that one because I don't think a lot of us are familiar with this idea. So it says, um, Exodus 27, verses 20 and 21, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that the lamp may regularly set, be set up to burn. In the tent of the meeting, outside the veil, is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend to it in the evening to morning. Before the Lord, it shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout the generations by the people of Israel. So this is one of the priestly duties, and the fact that Samuel is doing it also confirms that Samuel is from the tribe of Levi. Mm-hmm. He's one of the sons of Aaron. He, he is not just a random person. Right. So, yeah. So, okay. So it's... um. He's and, and he's old enough to be doing performing mm-hmm. a priestly task. Yeah. Yeah. And but again, I mean, everything's still kind of wishy-washy at this point because Hofne and Fincas, they're the, the main priest at this point. Eli's retired. He's just kind of retaining that honored position. Mm-hmm. And 
they they aren't doing correctly. So it may be one of those things where Eli's just having to get help where he can get help. And so if it's a little, if, you know, Samuel's a little young, so be it. Yeah. And, and apparently his boys, if it doesn't involve meat or sex, women, yeah. 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 They, they really aren't interested. So that's going to come up later too. And in, in the rest of the story. Um, but, you know, we all know the story. Um, Samuel, he hears the voice and Samuel replies, Hanani, here I am. I, I'm ready to do whatever needs to be done. I'm committing to it before I even know the circumstances or conditions. Mm-hmm. But now he's saying this to Eli. And Eli tells him, go back, lie down. It wasn't me. And so this happens a couple of times. And I think it's very interesting in verse 7. It's specifically the, the text notes that Eli did not yet. I mean, sorry, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And so it's kind of offered as an explanation. This is why Samuel doesn't know God's voice. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a sad commentary. Yeah, I mean, because wouldn't you assume that he would have been taught Torah? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's growing up in the temple. He's growing up with the spiritual leaders of Israel. And yeah, why doesn't he know this? And he's obviously old enough to be trusted with these priestly duties. So at this point, he should have known because the the basic principle is that you begin teaching a child Torah as soon as they're able to speak. Mm-hmm. And so around three years old is kind of the rule of thumb. And you begin with Leviticus. And I, I still, that just cracks me up. I can't imagine trying to teach a child to memorize Leviticus because we've got people who won't even read it in their 40s. So, I mm-hmm. mean, but um, contrast that with Naomi and Ruth because, you know, Ruth is in Moab with this Israelite woman who's having all this hardship and she knows more about God at this point is wanting to draw near to God Mm -hmm. just based on her experience with Naomi. And so the, the, the distinction we're we're constantly seeing these women who are presenting the Torah better than the men. And we had that with Mrs. Manoak, who seemed to have way more understanding. We have it with Naomi. Now we have it. We're seeing how the men are falling down on their job here in Samuel. Mm -hmm. And, we're actually going to have another woman speak up. I mean, Hannah, obviously, she spoke up at the beginning of the book, but another woman's going to speak up in chapter four. So she's going to show that she has a better understanding. So the third time that, that God calls to Samuel, Eli finally gets a clue. Right. Because evidently Eli's not with it very much either. He, I don't know if he thinks the boy's dreaming or what, or maybe it's just because God hadn't spoken in so long. It, it it doesn't even occur to Eli that God could be speaking again. And it shows us how unaware Eli is of events just over and over again. So verse 10, and the Lord came and stood calling as other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. So notice the language there. God came and stood. So this presents him. He's not just an audible voice. He's there. He's mm-hmm. present. This is the same language that we have back with Gideon whenever mm-hmm. the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Samuel, Samuel. That's the formulaic announcement that God's the one who's talking. We have that Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, Jacob, Saul, Saul, uh, with, uh, before Paul, Paul and Saul in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why Saul knew that it was God talking to him on the Damascus Road and not, you know, just he bumped his head too hard. That's interesting. Yeah, I, well, and I, I do find it. Uh, you know, I find it funny that it does say God came and stood at the temple mm-hmm. because, again, we do have that idea that this it's just this disembodied voice. Um, and, and I've actually been told that he just heard a voice, mm-hmm. you know, and it's I, I think that's how it was taught to me. But yet here in the scripture, it plainly says something different. Mm-hmm. And I think it shows us how often our presuppositions really became an issue with what we can grasp from the, the scripture. Yeah. Well, and I, yeah, I guess there's not like the, the SBC footnote that this is obviously <laughs> uh, anthropomorphism, you know? <laughs> well, you, you know, and we were talking, uh, I was talking to somebody online uh, just yesterday when we went through Judges 1 and 2, where they're having conversations with God before they go into Canaan. And the angel of the Lord in, in chapter 2 shows up and says, I'm going to leave you. Mm-hmm. And the people see him and, they're, and you realize, wait a minute, he's been there with them the entire time, mm-hmm. having these conversations, fighting with them in these battles. 
he wasn't some abstract idea. He wasn't just that, that you know, pillar of smoke and, and fire. He, he was a person living among them mm-hmm. and or at least showing up when they need that needed him. Right. And which that kind of blows my mind. And and I made the joke about the SBC. I'm, I'm <laughs> I, I, I'm not trying to just make fun of Baptists. That's just how we were raised SBC. We're so, making fun of ourselves so kind of and our own heritage. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, but the gentleman I was talking with, uh, we actually he pointed out the language about Jericho and how God was actually marching with them. And so I thought that was a really interesting thing I hadn't put together. So we, mm-hmm. we have it over and over again in the Old Testament. We've just been blinded to it because we're following tradition mm-hmm. instead of actually reading what's on the page. Mm-hmm. So that, and that's one of the reasons why I love doing this, because I have to actually stop and look at what's on the page. Yeah, well, and, and, and that's one of the things, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of scholars get criticized um, when they present stuff like this because, oh, well, they're bringing some kind of new teaching. It's some kind of. Uh, or, or like, oh, well, why didn't anybody, <laughs> if this was, if this was really what God's word said, then it wouldn't have been such a secret for so long. It's, like, it's not a secret. It's not. It's carefully, carefully concealed in books. <laughs> yes. Um, the- I caught the Lake Placid um, <laughs> reference there. So anyway, yeah, it, but it, this is true. And I, I want, I have a whole tangent on that. So I'll restrain myself. So verse 11, then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a new thing in Israel at which two e- the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm going to make your ears burn pretty right. much. Um, a new thing, all new things begin with the Lord. I, I don't care where you are in the Bible. I don't care where you are in history. All new things begin with the Lord. Um, the ears will tingle. We find this three times in the scripture. One is here, obviously. The second time is in 2 Kings 21.12, and we know Kings is a continuation of Samuel, Mm -hmm. so it makes sense that they use the phrase again. But it's God speaking once again, Mm -hmm. and he's denouncing Manasseh, and Manasseh is not a great king. And when we get to him, a lot of the things that we've said in previous episodes, I think, are going to make a lot more sense. Okay. And Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, well, and the, the warning that God is giving is that Solomon's temple is going to be destroyed. And so we know that this, there's a connection with the destruction of the temple and, and this phrase, because we also find it in Jeremiah 19.3, also prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So God's holy places being destroyed, they make people's ears burn when they hear the news. Matter of fact, they can't even accept it. They can't believe that this is something that God is going to do. Right. And this is a clue as to the fate of Shiloh. Because well, and I think it's really interesting that God says he's going to destroy the temple or, or mm-hmm. allow the temple to be destroyed. You know, it, it's, I mean, what other God is going to do that in ancient cultures? None, because they couldn't afford to. Yeah. I mean, their, their reputation would be completely ruined. Their, their, their place of power and authority would, would be decimated, and then they would no longer have power and authority. God doesn't need a temple. Right. And, yeah. and that's amazing news. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if you were an ancient person hearing that and realizing that, that just tells you the God of Israel is so much bigger than any other God you're going to encounter. Yeah. And so, yeah. And this, and this is why we study this stuff, because it makes everything more interesting. And, and I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it just reveals how interesting it is. It doesn't make anything more interesting. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so... We'll talk probably more about that when we get there. Yeah, well, because we got some great um, things to say about temples of other gods coming up in a future um, future episode. But this is really a clue that te- Shiloh is going to be destroyed after the battle with the Philistines, and that's coming up soon too. And we never have it mentioned as a place of worship after this point in time. So even though the text never specifically says that Shiloh is destroyed. And we just kind of have to gather from other sources and, and the lack of things that are said about it and, and try to understand what's, what's not being said. And that's, right. that's the reason why you have to be familiar with your Bible, because sometimes important things aren't always said. They're not said, and you're supposed to notice that they're not said. Right. So verses 12 through 14, God basically promises to fulfill his words to Eli. He told Eli in chapter 2, hey, I'm going to cut off your house. I'm going to judge your house. There's going to be problems. And it's reminding Eli that he had a chance to act. 
He could have restrained his sons, but he didn't. And because he didn't restrain his sons, God's going to take him out. Mm-hmm. And God's telling Eli that at this point, it doesn't even matter how much you sacrifice, how much you cry. I, I'm not going to forgive and I'm not going to relent. It, it, it's, it's too late. You mm-hmm. had your chance. And, you know, this is God maintaining healthy boundaries. This is not him being unfeeling or unkind because Eli knew what should have been happening. Mm -hmm. Eli had heard from the people, the horrible things his sons were doing. He didn't act. God himself sends a prophet, an unnamed, an Ish Elohim, unnamed prophet says, you know, this is what's happening. You need to do something about it. So he's had several chances to do something. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he, he has decided not to act other than, you know, this kind of little slap on the wrist thing that he had with the sons in uh, chapter two that really didn't right. amount to anything. He, he, could, he could have prevented Shiloh from being destroyed, and he possibly could have even saved his entire house and let them maintain that role in the temple. But as it is, they're going to wind up begging for bread. They're going to try any way they can to get back into priestly service. So that they can have some some substance Mm -hmm. and they don't you know, they don't have that. So one of the things this is telling us is God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't care what your role is. He doesn't care what your title is. If you're messing up, there's consequences. Mm -hmm. And so even if you're his priest and you're making these kinds of decisions and being inactive like this, you, you are actually probably bringing more problems on yourself than if you're just a lay person who's misbehaving. And right. yep. I, I think leadership is held more accountable. So. No, I mean, we, we're, we're told that, you know, we're told that in the New Testament, I believe. I think Paul writes that to somebody. Yeah, I'd have to look it up, but yeah, I think the principle's there. So maybe, maybe I'll remember to put it in the show notes. I'm not promising anything. So anyway, um, verse 15 Samuel lay until morning, and then he opened the doors to the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell his vision to Eli. Now, um, this is good prophetic practice, and I have a lot of people on Facebook that I see who call themselves prophets, and I've seen, you know, clips of different people who who call themselves prophets. I'm not debating whether or not they are, but I think these are good kind of litmus tests to kind of put out there if you come across some of these things. Mm-hmm. Um. Don't start running your mouth just because you think you've heard from the Lord. Well, there's there's that. Um, <laughs> Take a beat. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, and just find that person with to, to speak some wisdom into things, but also because one of the and also um, get it on record with somebody before an event happens. Because I have because there's the other side of that where there's I, I've seen some prophets who. Oh, this event happened. Yeah, and the Lord told me about it six months ago. <laughs> and, you know, let's go post-state the prophecy. Yeah, well, um, that's it, it. And if that did happen, like I said, I'm not debating whether or not it did happen. It wasn't prophecy. It was a mystical experience. And there's a difference. Mystical experiences are private for individual edification. Prophetic experiences are public. <laughs> and they're not complete until they have an audience to engage in them. Again, uh, that's all in my thesis in the paddle store. So I'm making a plug here, become a Patreon supporter. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I think that a lot of times there's this, there's this prophetic urgency. And this is kind of throughout the Bible that when you hear from God, there's, a, there's this tendency to want to run out and, and proclaim it. But Samuel, and we also see this with Jeremiah, they pause, they sleep on it. They take some time because the word is so big. And you got to, you know, this is basically Samuel's dad and he's Mm -hmm. been functioning in that father figure kind of role. And he's going to go tell him this horrible news. And he recognizes the impact that it's going to make on Eli's life. I mean, Hophni and Finkas were, you know, either like brothers or cousins or, you know, uncles, maybe Mm -hmm. They, they were important figures in Samuel's life, too. And they would have been eating at the same meals together. They would have been, you know, working alongside each other. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't something that Samuel's just, oh, good. I get to go tell the bad guys that God's going to destroy them. He, he feels the pain that this is going to cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's the second thing we need to w- look at when we're talking about prophetic words. Do you feel the pain that the word is going to cause? Because if you're just going to gloat because you get to tell someone they're screwing up, 
I mean, that's not a prophetic word. We do that every day. Read Facebook. Right. And so, I mean, and that's, that's the thing with God's prophets. When the people are in sin, is there anger? Yes. But that anger always is the secondary emotion that covers a broken heart. Mm-hmm. And so we're going we're gonna to talk some more about this. Now, the word for uh, vision in, in this section is moray, mare, sorry, mare, ah, got to get all my vowel pointing in there. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, it's almost, it, it's used mostly in Ezekiel and Daniel, and it, it literally means glass. Um, it it's, can be glass. It can be that the polished bronze surfaces that were used as mirrors. Um, it, it's the anything that has the ability to produce a reflection. Okay. And we first find this word in Genesis 46.2, and it's when Jacob is going down to, to Egypt to see Joseph, and he gets, it's the last time that God speaks. Mm-hmm. So um, we have that connection back to Egypt. Exodus 38.8 is the second time we see it, and that's whenever the bronze lavers for the, the tabernacle are made, and they're mm-hmm. made with the bronze looking glasses of the women who are serving in the temple. So again, we've got kind of this very subtle connection back with the temple or the tabernacle mm-hmm. and the women who were serving, but it's all tied up with the vision um, language. Yeah. And I, don't, I wouldn't make too big of a point on it, but I find it interesting that the, that the writer is using these little subtleties to keep our minds focused on the point he's trying to make. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the mark of, of, a good, of a good writer. Yeah. So... Numbers 12, 6 also, uh, this is where God reminds the people that he speaks through prophets and through visions and dreams, but not to Moses. He's faithful in all my house, mouth to mouth, and beholds the, the form of the Lord. Um, I'm trying to think why that, why I kept that. Oh, yes, he doesn't speak to God through Moses through that glass dimly. Oh, And gotcha. so, yeah, <laughs> it's been a few days since i've actually wrote these yeah yeah you got several weeks of research here and you're going back to the beginning (laughs) oh my goodness yeah and i read through them last night but and like i said there's so many threads there's just so many threads that you got to hold together and and samuel is is going to have this vision but at the same time remember nine times in the book of samuel we're told that Samuel serves before the Lord. And we're mm-hmm. reminded that he talks to God like Moses talks to God face to face because Samuel is playing the Moses character in this role, mm-hmm. uh, in this book. And you're talking about all the references. Is it a lot of the references to the tabernacle and to what's going on to remind us that this isn't just a story about Samuel? It's a story about the entire nation and, and, yeah. what, and how God relates to them. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Because as we go through Samuel, this is a point of transition, and we're going from that, that time of the judges, and we're going to a monarchy, and there's whole new politics to, to work out, and there, there's new forms mm-hmm. of relationship to, for the nation to try to figure out. And so here in Samuel, we're still in that period of judges, and Samuel is the last judge. And so we're being reminded of the judges' function and, and how they play a role in the formation of Israel, and it's kind of, um, kind of being hammered home really hard. Because what's going to happen is we need that foundation to make that contrast when the king arrives. Mm-hmm. And so this is the reason why the writer keeps pulling us back to the Torah, taking us back to Egypt, taking us back through the Exodus, because that's really where the period of the judges and the prophets' as leadership began. Yeah, and, and, the, and the progress, I mean, the, the way that everything moves through Israel's history is, is really weird anyway, because... It, it doesn't start as a monarchy, which I'm sure, I mean, I guess ultimately no civilization really technically starts as a monarchy. I don't know exactly how all that works out. But, I mean, you would think that Moses would, Moses or Moses' successor would, would fill that role. And it, it doesn't happen that way. Well, and it, even it, Moses' successor wasn't his son. Right. So it, it's just, it's a, it's a, a really bizarre transition especially when you look at how it how quickly everything descends into the judges period well but the thing is if there had been a monarch coming out of exodus egypt those e-words throw me sure um the exodus from egypt yes and so if there had been a monarch who's going to get all the credit it's not going to be god right so if you keep 
a king out of the picture who is either the embodiment of God or the human representative for God, depending on which culture and which time you're talking. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you keep him out of the picture, now the people have to accept that God is the one who's who's doing all this. Right. And then if you look back at, at Genesis, there are so many times where kings are present. I mean, Abraham has dealings with with Pharaoh, with Abimelech, the War of the Five Kings, the King of Sodom. I mean, it, we mm-hmm. have all uh, Sodom. Sorry, uh, flicked over into Hebrew. But um, the uh, the establishments of monarchies were were very much a part of the world mm-hmm. and had been for you know at least three hundred years before this is happening, if not six to seven. Right. So. No, and, and and then and then whenever he does establish the one who's going to have the the lasting monarchy, it's the the shepherd, and so yeah, it's I I think it's really interesting. Oh, and especially there's that tie back to, and I I know we'll probably get there. But then there's that tie back to <laughs> Egypt because mm-hmm. the Israelites were shameful, an abomination, because they were, yeah, because they were sheep herders, and so anyway, that's. Well, and I'm, the, I'm probably, like I said, I'm probably getting ahead, but we'll, we'll hit it again. Oh, we're going to be jumping back and forth so often. But I mean, that's the thing with this. And I can't overstate this. There are so many connections and I don't even hit them all. I had to go. We can only handle so much before our brains truly do fry. Well, the good news is we've got plenty of time to do we it. We've got plenty of time. I just don't we know get if to we set the schedule. Well, no. I just don't know if we have the bandwidth. <laughs> that's that's the problem. Uh, if we go any deeper, I'm going to need a dry erase board and we're going to have to start drawing charts. <laughs> I can get you on a dry erase board. I can get you a dry erase. Board. I always want a dry erase board. <laughs> we'll just have to figure out how that's going to work with the microphones. So, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll have to figure that out later. Um, verses 16 through 18, uh, Eli calls to Samuel in the morning. He, he recognizes that Samuel has had this experience with God and he probably has at least some intuition that it's not been necessarily pleasant. Remembering, you know, we always think of God showing up as being this great and wonderful thing. Uh, It was a terrifying thing. When the angel of the Lord appears, almost every time his first words are, fear not. Don't be afraid. (laughs) So this this is something that I think Eli at least had enough sense to recognize. But he makes Samuel promise to tell him everything that God has said. And he even threatens uh, Samuel with kind of these grave consequences if he hides anything. Well, I mean, okay, so here's the other thing. <laughs> that, can you imagine this conversation? So first off, you have the, what, what God says to Samuel. And in the morning, Eli's like, so what did God say to you? Well, the thing is, in, if you listen to what God said, I will do to Eli all that I've said, but he doesn't tell Samuel what he said. And so can you imagine this conversation? What do you tell you? Well, what did he tell you? That's that's what I've got going on in my mind. Well, yeah, because I mean, hey, Samuel's a kid, and you you know that a kid has got to be curious. I mean, kid's going to ask. There's no sense of propriety there. They're just going to spill it. But you know, Samuel seems to be reluctant to to even go into this conversation, and it isn't until Eli kind of corners him and and says, you know. I, I kind of, my vision of it is, you know, the parents have had a fight and dad's in the backyard at the grill griping about mom. And the, the little kid goes in and says, well, what, you know, mom says, what did dad say? <laughs> and yeah, like, not going to no. repeat that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but you know, we all use our own kind of uh, metric to kind of understand <laughs> these stories. Yeah. It's just, I was thinking of this conversation. So, so what God tell you? Uh, do you want to go first? <laughs> It's a weird conversation and it even ends up weird because Eli just, he accepts it. He says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Mm -hmm. I mean, God said he's going to kill your sons. He says your grandkids are going to be, you know, have these short lives. They're going to be begging for bread. Wake up. Where's your concern for your family? Right. Uh, And he he just, he doesn't have it. He just gets very fatalistic about the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. He's a kind of Eeyore character here. So, but the the language that's used is similar to something we find in some Akkadian text. Yeah. And um, it's a protocol for prophets or in the Akkadian, they're diviners. And um, the, they say to, a, a prophet will say to the person seeking the word, I will tell and I will not conceal. So the idea that they actually have to say everything that's been told, that they can't, 
you know, hold back the bad so they can get a bigger payoff. Sure. Um, now, does this guarantee that happened? It's like a, it's like a legal contract. It's uh, yeah. yeah, you may not. Results may vary. Right. <laughs> so but Eli, Eli totally misses the point and because he. He says, you know, whatever God thinks is good, you know, let him do it. But God doesn't do this because he thinks it's good. He, he does it because it's necessary. Mm-hmm. He does it because it's, it's justice. Mm-hmm. And God does not appreciate it when his leaders don't perform acts of justice. And throughout all of the, the prophetic words, if you look at what's being said, so often the issue addressed is social justice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't talk about that a lot in the church, um, at least not in our tradition. And the idea that social justice might actually be something important to God. Right. So, um, but I will move on as soon as I can get to the proper passage. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, if you look at what the prophets had to say and, and, and read some Brueggemann, he'll help you out with it if you don't get oh, it. Oh, yeah. Brueggemann has been so good in understanding this. And I will, uh, I need to go on record as saying, if you get a if you're new to Bible study and you just want a good commentary to kind of go into Samuel, maybe read along, see some more things that, that I don't have time to bring up or, you know, feel like we're kind of off track from where mm-hmm. I'm going, get the Bergman book. It, it's worth it. And if you can find a copy of God in Search, uh, no, In Man We Trust, Trust. Right by there behind Brueggemann. you. I found it. Don't look That's over there. That's mine. <laughs> no, nope, don't look. It's not there. It's not the book you're looking for, but you are. Uh, In Man We Trust by Walter Brueggemann is really good. He actually does a really good uh, compare and contrast of Saul, David, and Samuel. Um, I may need to borrow that one again. (laughs) Borrow your own book. Borrow my own book. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Okay. I need to read through it again. It's been been a a while. It just just now occurred to me that, hey, that book talks about what we're talking about. Yeah, that that was really good. Uh, It was one of my assigned books in seminary that you stole. So (laughs) borrowed, it's still here. (laughs) Okay. So verse 19, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and none of the, and sorry, the ESV is funny. I realized we don't have a problem reading. We're just having a problem reading the ESV. So we may have to go with a smoother translation for, for that purpose. No, I have a problem (laughs) reading aloud. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter what it is. Some of this is just the phrasing, but anyway, that's a whole other story. Verse 19, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So um, this is setting up the stage for who Samuel is. Uh, God let none of his words fall to the ground. So God is making certain that every prophecy Samuel gives, it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And he is doing this because he is proving to the people that Samuel is his prophet. Right. And, you know, this is one of the litmus tests for prophets in Deuteronomy. Now, Brueggemann, speaking of, uh, he actually picks up on the, the subtle way the text is written. And he, he points out that Israel is receiving Samuel's words. Not God's words. Okay. The two are connected, but they're not the same. They're okay. not equated with each other. So Samuel still has the capacity to speak for himself, but he's not always in lockstep with God. We're going to see that as we go through Saul. Right. Samuel, as we, we talked about, you know, he seems to be born an old man, a cranky old man. Right. Um, and the, these things that... Um, we often overlook in biblical characters are, you know, they don't, they don't always have the best attitude. And what I love about Samuel's story is he, he's always grumbling. He's always complaining, Mm -hmm. but he's still obedient. And that, that's pretty amazing that we can actually grumble and gripe to God, but it's not the end of the world. God will still take care of us and still respond to us as long as we're still acting in a faith and obedience. And so, um, what Brueggemann is saying here, it basically is that Samuel, even whenever he may not be 100% on the same page as God, uh, is that God is still going to uphold Samuel's words to make sure that no one doubts who Samuel is. Right. So that actually is very much in keeping with what the rabbis had to say about Samuel. And there is this question of 
where does Samuel's bad attitude end and God's prophecy begin? And we're going to see that. And that's uh, when we get to Saul. Some interesting thoughts there. <laughs> yeah, well, it really is. And because you've got to remember that the prophets, when they spoke, it was believed that they spoke with the Hadavar. Um, Hadavar is the creative word, it, that their words actually created new realities. Mm -hmm. And so when Samuel speaks as a prophet, his words make new possibilities. And so God has really endowed him with the spirit that exceeds just delivering a message. Mm -hmm. He's actually going to participate in the things that God is doing by becoming a creative force. Right. And we see that because he's the kingmaker. He creates the monarchy. Now it's God working through Samuel, but Samuel is the, the one, the face that we're going to see. Okay. So um, Samuel's identified as a prophet here. This is Navi, and this is the first male prophet named since Moses. Right. We've had two female prophets, mm -hmm. but no male prophets during this time. So I think that's really interesting. Um, matter of fact, there's 19 male prophets named in the Old Testament. Right. And there's five women. So basically a little over one-fifth of the prophets. There's five women. Five women. 19 men. men mm -hmm. So a little over 25%. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. I don't do math. But um, so, but... That's a significant number of women yeah. whenever you realize the, the ratio like that. So when you've got um, women being named as prophetess, th this is amazing. Yeah, you're going to pull out your calculator. I've got to figure it out now, <laughs> like what the... Sorry. It's... So, okay, while you're figuring that out, uh, the, the word Navi comes from an Akkadian word. It's 26.3, et cetera, percent. Okay. So, yeah. A pretty good showing for the gals. Yeah. Just got to so say. the word... Go ahead. Yeah. The, the word Navi comes from the Akkadian word Navu. Uh, it means to be called by name or to be called to duty. Okay. And in, in the Akkadian, it's used to describe men who are called to duty by God. So it, God's tell these men, I need you to do this. Okay. And so to be a Navi was to be in service of, of God. Sure. And that's something that we forget, that it's not about telling the future. It's not about um, predicting things. It's not about finding lost things. These are all things that other prophets would do in other nations. Mm -hmm. It's about telling the people what God had to say. And it doesn't matter whether it happened three years ago, today, or, you know, five years in the future. It, it's about that word. Mm -hmm. And so the moment we, we start trying to think of prophets as simply being fortune tellers, we, we've stopped honoring the position that they've been called to. Right. And I think we need to remember that. So verse 21, it said that the Lord had appeared again at Shiloh and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. Now, again, there's a general resistance to reading this literally. Mm -hmm. And I know we kind of went over this a little bit, but, you know, there, I don't know why the idea that God can appear to humanity whenever and however he wants becomes a problem to people who, who believe that God became flesh in Jesus Christ. I, I don't get that. Well, I, th I think it's an overemphasis on this, on the idea of not being able to see the face of God and living that, mm. that we we've heard that over and over. You can't see the face of God and live, but I think uh, Heiser did a kind of a treatment of this mm -hmm. recently in his Exodus series uh, where it's not so much about the face of God incarnate uh, as in the mm -hmm. angel of the Lord, but it's, you can't not see God in his in his full fullness of glory. Yeah, which um, makes total sense. And so, yeah, I would recommend checking that up. We'll throw it in the show notes. Um, but yeah, it's that one in uh, Benjamin Sommer, uh, the bodies of God in the Hebrew text, or something like that. Uh, the Old Test, the bodies of God in the Old Testament. I can't remember the name. Excellent work on God manifesting Himself in okay. the Old Testament. And now that is written from a strictly Jewish perspective. So he's not going to draw all the same conclusions that a Christian might, right? but he does present the evidence well. And mm -hmm. a lot of times, and that's something good to kind of point out, when we are talking about uh, Jewish sources, we have to recognize that, you know, basically they stop drawing conclusions with the New Testament. They, they don't factor any of that in. So we as Christians have to take that work as a foundation mm -hmm. and then being able to discern what actually applies to, to Christians and moves beyond the Old Testament into this day. 
And so uh, even like the Jewish study Bible, I was talking to somebody uh, just a couple of days ago and they were asking for a good study Bible in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. suggested this and reminded them, hey, this is coming from a different tradition, a different background, and you need to take that into account. But you still get all the good foundational and, material. Yeah, yeah you, still get, you still get a lot of solid work. Um, and and mm-hmm. even though it doesn't necessarily have the, the Christian perspective, doesn't mean it's evil. Right. It, it just it means that this is how the, the Jewish perspective, mm-hmm. that this is how you would look at it if you were reading this before Jesus came around. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes we put so much emphasis, and, I'm, and we should, on the person of Jesus. And don't get me wrong, I'm not downplaying the, the significance of Jesus being here. Right. He's, that, yeah, he was fairly significant. Yeah, yeah. And, but you know, we forget that he, doesn't, he isn't diminished by any of these Old Testament appearances. And right. it, it doesn't detract from anything he did during his time, you know, because there isn't the birth narrative. There isn't the, the, the growing up and the, the full-on human experience that Jesus had as Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it's more showing up in the moment that Israel needs that help uh, whenever we see the, this uh, angel of the Lord appear. And, you know, here it is with with Samuel, he's appearing, and, and I mentioned this before, you know, nine times he's before the face of the Lord. And we forget that, you know, at the end of this verse where the commentators have flatly, many of the commentators I read said, this is not appearance language. They said, this is just, this is just a voice. And I'm like, what? You, you know, you were doing so well. And then you, you fumbled the ball. What's, the, yeah. what's going on here? Yeah, I... and, and just 10 verses before this, the Bible specifically said that that God stood in Samuel's presence. So why th- this is not a major leap within the text? Well, it's anthropomorphic language, and God's always present. You know, he's it's yeah. It's just so that we can understand. I I know. I think um, yeah. You know, there are things in the Bible that are contextualized and and brought down so that we can understand that. That's without debate. But then there's just some things that. God just lays out there and we need to accept it. That's what faith is about. Sure. And I believe that this is not a mistake. And, you know, there's this ongoing dialogue. And as we move through, through Samuel's life, we're going to see that there's conversations with God, that there aren't just these, you know, um, these ideas of casting lots or, Mm -hmm. you know, God is actually giving entire paragraphs for Samuel to tell the people this, this doesn't happen if you're trying to use some kind of divination device that was available to people at that time. Right. So the, the fact that God shows up, it, it, it's very, it's almost necessary for Samuel to be who he is. And, you know, on top of that, we've got in Judges where, you know, the angel of the Lord shows up to Gideon and he shows up to Manoah and his wife and, you know, claiming God could not or, or, would not appear. It, it's it's inconsistent and it's arbitrary, and I, I think it forces us to to leave the plain reading of the text. So, as we move forward, we need to keep in mind all the connections to Moses. Well, actually, one okay. more thing. Sorry yeah, about, about the plain reading of the uh, of, of the text. Which <laughs> I knew that was going to set you off. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no. It's it's really interesting because it's the. It, it is often I hear that that argument of this is just so we can understand it better. But then also the same crowd is also the literalist with Genesis one through three. Mm-hmm. And they go and their argument is, well, when we stop taking this literal, when we don't read it literally there, at what point do we get to decide, oh, well, when did God stop lying to me about how things went <laughs> <Right>. on? <laughs> well, it's the same thing here. At yeah. what point do you get to choose when God is is lying? Yeah. And, and, you know, that's that's an interesting debate to have because we do have this this arbitrary idea that. Well, that we are arbitrators, that we can say when God is being literal and whenever he's being metaphorical. And I think anytime we're not dealing with one, a psalm, a poetic or wisdom literature uh, reading, then we can pretty much assume God's being literal. Okay. So I. Because like in the narrative stuff. Yeah, yeah. In the narrative stuff, I, I don't think that we really need to um we don't need to try to find another meaning for it. Now Genesis um one through three, we got a lot of poetry, we have a lot of polemics, and which 
that's that's the thing that's going on there. And now, am I negating that that's truth? Absolutely not. Don't don't misunderstand me. I believe Genesis one through three happened. I think maybe we might lack the ability to understand exactly how these things happened. Yeah. It, was a, it was a complicated process, <laughs> right? Life <laughs> always is, and he created a lot of life. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. What's funny is is you know we're just to go back to what we were saying earlier about. Um, Egypt and you know because we start out with with the Genesis 1 through 3 and and your take on it is that it's a polemic against the Egyptian gods and the, the uh, Canaanite Mesopotamian yes yeah. all those but what's really kind of funny is if we go back to that the shepherds were shameful and then we move to David being king it's like God's still like poking oh yeah fun at, at, at Egypt in a way uh, oh Constantly. Like raising up a shepherd as the king. Yeah. And then, of course, who is Jesus? He's the good shepherd. And I mean, we, we get to, into all of that. No, God has got this major sarcastic streak. He's got just this twisted sense of humor that is hilarious. As long as you're not on the receiving, receiving end. end. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. The Egyptians didn't find it very funny. Exactly. Now, did they? <laughs> well, and, you know, we're getting ready to go into one of your favorite stories about God's sense of oh, humor. Oh, gosh. And yes. So we'll get that done today. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but going back to Egypt, this is the thing. This story is tied directly to Egypt. And I, I want to hit some of the high points because, again, got to keep this intention. So that you you don't miss anything, you can get that true note if mm -hmm. you pull on your guitar uh, analogy. So um, you know this is a time of oppression. Mm -hmm. Finchas and and Hophni, they're they're acting like the Egyptians. God said, you know, I anointed your family in Egypt. You brought Egypt with you, and you've polluted my house. It's got to go. Mm -hmm. And so we got that connection back. Um, and they're they're oppressing the nation from within. And you got the Philistines. They're going to be oppressing the nation from without. God's rejected the, the house of Eli because of that. Mm -hmm. And he's rejecting them specifically because they're preventing people from giving sacrifices. What did Pharaoh refuse to let Moses do? Take the people out to give the sacrifices properly. Mm -hmm. um, they're abusing the women. What did Pharaoh do? He kept the girls alive with the implication that, that was for sexual service in his harem or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Samuel and Moses are God's response to the affliction of his people. Remember, Hannah, she uses the same words that Moses had used at the burning, or God had used to Moses at the burning bush. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, God is silent, sorry, God is silent in Egypt. He never speaks while the children of Israel are in Egypt. It's not until Moses goes out into the desert that God actually mm -hmm, speaks once mm -hmm. again. Yeah. The word of the Lord is rare. There is no vision during the time of Samuel until, until Samuel is ready to receive it. Right. So um, Moses heard God before a bush that was not, that was burning, but not burned up. Now there's a very interesting connection with Samuel before a lamp that mm -hmm. had not yet gone out. Right. And so it, it, again, subtle, subtle on the part of the writer. Um, both places where, where Moses spoke with God and where Samuel speaks with God are places where God is at home. Mm -hmm. Sinai, that mountain, that holy place. You can go back to our um, episode on the navel of the Lord. Of the navel of the earth. War. Yeah, that's it. Uh, and then the tent of meeting, where where the Ark of the Covenant is, where it's God's throne or God's footstool, depending on how it's being described at that mm -hmm. moment. Both Moses and Samuel instituted total regime change, liberating liberating Israel from their oppressors, and. When they do that, they also appoint new leadership. And we're going to talk more about that leadership later. Um, Moses is going to commission Bezalel to create the tabernacle, to create the Ark of the Covenant. And Samuel mm -hmm. is going to appoint the king who he's going to take it past the, uh, the tabernacle and create the temple. Mm -hmm. And so both these places become places where God is glorified, where he's manifest, where the people can come to meet with him. And so the stories do line up very well. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if you have that, that background of, of Exodus in your head and Moses' story and the things that he accomplished, you, you begin to see how the two stories begin to illuminate each other right. and they fill in the gaps for each other. Yeah. And it works both ways. Okay. So I think that's a pretty good place for us to kind of start wrapping up. Is there any... No, I, that's, that's a lot of information in this episode. So... <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll have to think about some of it. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll discuss a lot of this 
multiple times by the time we're through the book, just because mm -hmm. <clears throat> the way it's put together. But I think that's a good spot to end. Um, and this, this was one. an easy chapter. <laughs> oh, I know. That's, that's the fun part. So everyone, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I, it was a lot of information. So uh, you, I'm going to probably listen to this one at least twice. Um, <laughs> so everyone, thank you for joining us. Um, and I guess uh, if you want to be part of the conversation, um, if I can remember what we do at the end of this, if you want to be part of the conversation, uh, hit us up on Raven Creek SC. Uh, dot com or find us on all the social media at Raven Creek SC. Uh, we will be there um, mainly Facebook because we're old folk. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, look for us there and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.